I'd like to ask you, if you would, open your Bibles. We're going to be in Romans uh, chapter 8 and then chapter 12. Uh, and um, if you have the Version Bible app, you're going to find that there's a live event for this. That makes it easy to follow along. But Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to begin in just a few minutes here. Romans 8 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It has many, many good verses in it. It has a verse that is a favorite of a lot of people. Um, it, uh, it, it, it's in verse 28. Take a look at that. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who loved him, love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, everybody loves that first part of the passage. Everybody's like, yeah, I like it that God is working for my good. I'm called according to his purpose, and whoo, all this garbage that's going on around me, God's going to be able to work that for good. We like that. The next part of the passage can become a little controversial. Look at verse 29. It says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. You see the the controversy, right? If you've been hanging around church much, you know that the controversy there is, wait a second, God predestined me. God predestined people to be saved. Wait, I thought it was my choice. What do I do with that whole thing of, do I choose to follow Jesus? And what's all this these sermons telling me to follow Jesus, if God is predestining it in advance, if he has this foreknowledge in advance, then I don't have any free will at all. I've been in so many discussions regarding that question that it almost becomes a little bit humorous after a while, although it isn't. And I kind of feel like maybe this kind of concept of free will versus predestination, it falls into the category of what physicists like to call a thought experiment, you know? Schrodinger's cat, is he dead or is he alive? I don't know. I didn't even know he had a cat, you know? And so I feel like people just like to maybe think about that and, and sometimes think about it more than God even wants them to think about it. We're not going to think about it at all today. The reason I'm directing you to this passage is because I want you to see what it says that God has predestined you to. Read verse 29 again. It says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. So God has in advance destined you, predestined you to be like Jesus, to be holy, to be pure, to be loving, to be just, to be fair, to be gracious to be merciful, to be long-suffering, to be faithful, to be gentle. All those character qualities in Jesus that can be transmitted to you, God has predestined you to be like that. He has predestined you to be sanctified. Now, that word sanctify, (laughs) sanctification, it's pretty common in Alliance churches. In fact, it's right in our statement of faith. If you were looking at the Alliance stand, reading about what does the Christian and Missionary Alliance believe, you're going to come upon article number seven or so there. And this is what it says. It says, it is the will of God that each believer should be filled with the Holy Spirit and be sanctified holy, being separated from sin and the world 
and fully dedicated to the will of God, thereby receiving power for holy living and effective service. This is both a crisis and a progressive experience wrought in the life of the believer subsequent to conversion. Wow, they said a mouthful there, didn't they? Yeah, like, what in the world does that, what, what is that about, right? Well, we have been talking over the past several weeks about where we need to look when we're in trouble. Remember, we began saying you need to look to God when you're in trouble. We talked about looking to the Scripture when you have a need. We talked about looking to the Holy Spirit that He might speak to you. We've talked about looking to the cross. Today, I want to encourage you to look to the altar. And I'm going to kind of unpack that and help you understand what it means. Now, you were in Romans 8 just a moment ago. I'd like you to turn to pages, about two or three pages in your Bible, and go to Romans 12, and we're going to look at a very, very familiar passage of Scripture. If you've been in church much at all, you've come upon this passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 12 is written to Christians. It's written to people who already believe in Jesus. And he says in this text, God says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's really a contradiction in terms, if you think about it. You know how there's always people that don't want to hear what the Bible has to say, and they'll say, well, the Bible's full of contradictions anyway. Well, they might say this is, because this is a contradiction in terms. There's no such thing as a living sacrifice. I mean, when something is sacrificed, it's dead. If you're playing a game of chess, and you sacrifice a pawn or a knight so that the queen can take the king later, that pawn or that knight, they're sacrificed. They're out of the game, and they're not coming back. They're gone. Or in a relationship, maybe you would say, you know what, I I don't want to do this, but I'm going to really have to sacrifice my time over here uh, to help this person with this project they need. Once you have sacrificed that time, that time is gone. You can't get that back. Sacrifice means it's gone. Even in in the military, in a time of war. Soldiers who, who give the supreme sacrifice, they don't come home alive. Sacrifice is not living, and yet God calls us to be living sacrifices. And when we agree to that, God does something kind of amazing to us. We are no longer conformed to the pattern of this world. We are transformed, transformed into what he is predestining us to be, to the image of his Son. Now, this living sacrifice would be placed on an altar. And this altar, I don't want you to think of it as being an altar rail in a church or an altar where communion served or even an altar in a temple or tabernacle or something like that. I want you to think of this altar, when I speak of it, as being that moment and place where you say, yes, I will be a sacrifice, but I'll be a living one for God. Because when you come to that altar, when you look to that altar, something changes and you begin to be transformed into the image of Christ. Now, I kind of want to back up and answer a really basic question. And and it's a question you might not even ask, but I think it kind of lurks in our hearts sometimes. Why would anyone want to look like Jesus anyway? Why would I want to look like Jesus? 
And I kind of want to walk you through this. And I want to say there's almost maybe a selfish reason to want to look like Jesus. And that is when you behave like him, when you are like Jesus, it spares pain. It, it lowers pain. As time goes by, you realize that if you could be more like Jesus, it would save you pain. That Ralph Waldo Emerson was right when he said, most of the shadows of this life are caused by standing in one's own sunshine. I make my own shadows. I am my worst enemy. And I am my worst enemy. I have caused myself pain by saying mean things that I shouldn't have said. And if I were more like Jesus... I'd not have said those things, and I'd have been spared the pain. I have caused myself pain by being lazy and neglecting things that I shouldn't have neglected. And if I had been more like Jesus, then I would not have neglected those things, and I would have spared myself the pain. I have caused myself pain by pursuing things that were unwise, unholy for me to pursue. And if I were more like Jesus, I would not have pursued those things and I would have spared myself that pain. You see, when you look to the altar and when you choose to pursue Christ-likeness, then you begin to spare yourself some pain. And, and you don't just spare yourself pain, it saves, you, saves others pain as well. I mean, think of the pain, this is so easy for us to do. Think of the pain that other people have put into your life. You know, that rotten guy who did this thing. Think, think about that. Think of the mean words, <laughs> the neglect that maybe a spouse or another person inflicted upon you, the selfishness of someone else that was at your expense. You got those kind of things in your mind? Well, here's the reality. To a greater or lesser extent, we've all done the same thing. And what if that other person had been more like Jesus? What if you had been more like Jesus? then all around the pain would be far less. The more we behave like Jesus, the more we're conformed to his image, the less pain there is. And the less we choose to conform to his image, the more pain there is. So that's one reason that we would want to look like Jesus. But it's really kind of a trivial reason compared to the big reason. The big reason we would want to look like Jesus is because that's what you are called to do. You are called to reflect the image of God. In the beginning, God made man in his own image. Humankind is made to reflect the holiness, the awesomeness, the glory, the beauty, the majesty, the everything of God. You are called to do that. I love how the 2011 NIV renders the Greek in verse 1, where it says, this is your true and proper worship. That phrase in the Greek language is just very complex, and different translations render it different ways because it's really hard to get a, to get a handle on it. But I love what the NIV 2011 says. Reflecting Jesus, putting yourself on the altar, when you do that, you're doing your true and proper worship. You are doing what God has called you to do. In other words, you kind of find your sweet spot. I would say you find your happy place, but it's not always happy to do it. Because sometimes looking to the altar is, is painful. Sometimes laying yourself on the altar as a living sacrifice is incredibly difficult. 
Sometimes it's really costly. And you're like, I don't know that I really like doing this. But, but there is no place, there is no place you will ever be that fits you better than being in the will of God. It's your sweet spot. You might find yourself a bit like a mother who, while feeling completely exhausted with this newborn baby, rises at 1.28 in the morning and walks over to that crib and picks up that child and sits in that chair and nurses that child. And she's just an exhausted mom. Could I just get one night's sleep? And yet, while she's holding that child, she says, there is no place I would rather be. This is the right place for me to be. When you look to the altar, you find your sweet spot. And you are the place that you should be. And you find that God is glorified, that he receives blessing, he receives glory for it, he receives praise when you look to the altar. And that is really what you want him to receive. You want to please the one you love. That's why little boys bring dandelions to their mom. You know, dandelions for crying out loud. I tried bringing those to Laurel. She was not impressed. My little boy brings them to Laurel. She puts them in a a vase, right? Yeah. Little boys do that because little boys want to please the ones they love. That is why the cook makes your favorite food, chocolate chip cookies with no nuts. Just the way Jesus made them. Yeah, right? Yeah. Why does that person make you your favorite food? Because they want to please the one they love. And when you look to the altar and you present yourself to Jesus, you are pleasing the one you love. You are pleasing Him. You look to the altar and offer yourself to Him because it's what you were called to do. But make no mistake about this. Looking to the altar is difficult. You may have heard someone reading this passage saying, the problem with living sacrifices is they're always crawling off the altar. And there's a lot of truth to that. But the other side to the coin is this. The glory of living sacrifices is that when they are on the altar, their impact is immeasurable. In the words of Ed Jellif, maximum impact when you're on the altar. Now, I want to kind of take a few minutes and take apart some of the phrases of the Alliance stand here. And you might think, oh, this feels so academic, but it doesn't. It'll be intensely practical. It'll be intensely practical on helping you understand how to look to the altar. And we want to look to the altar because that's where we need to focus our attention. The first statement in the Alliance stand says that God wants this. It says it is the will of God. It is something he desires. It is a will of God that each believer should be filled with the Holy Spirit and sanctified holy. And you can look at that two ways. When you hear something's a will of God, there might be a party that says, oh man, God has this demand he's placing on me. I don't know that I want to do this. I guess I better gather up my body and collect it together and go over and put it on the altar. I hate it when God demands this. And if you look at it with that outlook, it will be misery. On the other hand, you can look at this and you can say, wait a second, this is something that God wants me to do, to offer my body as a living sacrifice. If he desires that I surrender my heart to him this way, then he must be providing what I need to do it. He would not ask me to do something that he would not give me the means to do. So that's pretty cool. And the difference between those two perspectives of man offering my body as a living sacrifice is a pain in the neck and God's demanding it to, wow, 
Offering my body as a living sacrifice is God something wants something God wants me to do, so he's providing. The difference is between trying to walk through a hedge of thorns and walking across a field of daisies. Because when you realize this is something God wants for you, and therefore he provides everything you need for life and godliness to do it, changes everything. This is something God wants. So he provides what we need. And it's something that he wants for everyone. It is the will of God that each believer should be filled with the Holy Spirit and sanctified holy. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm a Christian, but I don't go overboard with it? (laughs) I get that. I understand that. In fact, there are some religious types that just drive me crazy with their zeal. Are are there people like that that you've known through the years? But don't let those people, don't let the excesses and the confusion of those people blind you to the importance of looking to the altar and going there. We're not talking about being filled with religion here. We're talking about being filled with the breath of God, with the Holy Spirit. It is indeed God's will that all of us, each of us, be filled with the Holy Spirit and sanctified. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, it says. It doesn't say, therefore, I urge the leaders among you, and it could have. It doesn't say, therefore, I urge the passionate among you, and it could have. It doesn't say, therefore, I urge the prayer warriors among you, and it could have said that. But no, it's not talking to some elites that need to be super Christians. It's saying, in view of God's mercy, anyone who is seeing God's mercy, anyone who relies on Jesus' death, anyone who is a believer, more accurately, everyone who is these things, God wants each of them to look to the altar. And to experience this life. Being filled with the Spirit. Being sanctified. It is for each of us. And it's very clear on what sanctification is. First, it's separation. It says being separated from sin and the world. So people who have entered this life are people who stand out from those who don't know Jesus. The Bible says we're to be separate from the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, begins with these words. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. For everything in the world, if anyone loves the world, rather, the love of God is not in them. It says we're not to love and be like the world. We're to be separate from it. That doesn't mean moving into a monastery. You know, like, okay, I'm going to go find a castle on a hill far away from the world and all the people, and I'm going to close all the doors, and I'm just going to hang out there with God. Salt is no good in permanent storage. It has to be out where it can influence things. Light is not hid under a bushel. It has to be at a place where it can be effective. So separation from the world doesn't mean going to a monastery, but here's what else it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean standing aloof and judging the world. There's no benefit to the kingdom of God in that. Here's how separation from the world works. The world is all about taking care of yourself. But you are all about caring for others. That's because you're looking to the altar and offering yourself as a living sacrifice. The world is all about finding pleasure and self-fulfillment and getting me time. But you are more and more about pouring yourself out for something of eternal meaning. And that's because you've looked to the altar 
and offer yourself as a living sacrifice. The world, Jesus would use this phrase, is all about storing up treasures on earth, but you are all about laying up treasures in heaven because you're looking to the altar and sacrificing yourself there. The sanctified are not in love with the things that the world loves. Sanctification means being separate from the world, and sanctification means being dedicated to the will of God. It's a separation from the world. It's a dedication to the will of God. I've read this quote in the past six or eight years, probably hundreds of times. My daughter found it when she was in college, put it on her Facebook. I copied it. It's by a guy named George Bernard Shaw. He says this. Listen to this quote. This is true joy in life. The being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one. The being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clot of ailments and grievances complaining that the world won't devote itself to making you happy. George Bernard Shaw. He had some flaws, but buddy, he hit the nail on the head right there. It's dedication to something greater than yourself. Better. It's a dedication to someone greater than yourself and to his will. And when you look to the altar and offer yourself as a living sacrifice, you live a life of purpose, fully dedicated to the will of God. It's not surprising that it's an empowerment. Thereby, it says, receiving power for holy living and effective service. You see, when you look to the altar and offer yourself to God, he gives you power to do what you otherwise could not do. It's power for holy living so that you become more like Jesus. It's power for effective service so like Jesus you make a difference. One of my favorite memories is from my first year of marriage. We were still in the first apartment we ever lived in. We were in apartment number one. I remember where I was standing. I was standing in the dining area. Laurel and I are talking together. We're newly married. We're in love. And we're both attending Bible college together. We're sitting in the same classes. She sat in the front. I sat in the back. We had to meet in the middle. But we were taking the same classes, same professors, same homework, and we realized how amazingly different we were because she was an A student and I was not. I hated sitting in class. I hated taking notes. I hated reading the books. I hated writing the papers. I hated studying for the examinations. And I was bad at it, you know? And Laurel, in her innocence just honestly said, not intending to be mean, but something that was so right. She said, Steve, I can't think of anyone more ill-equipped to be a pastor than you. (laughs) It's a favorite memory. A favorite memory. Because it was 36 years ago. We finished school four years later, and for now for 32 years, I've been a pastor despite how ill-equipped indeed I am. Listen carefully. That is not because I beat the odds. It is not because I got smart. Here it is. It is because I looked to the altar and God sanctified me and filled me with His Spirit so I could engage in effective service. He gets the glory because he did it. 
When you look to the altar and offer yourself to God, He empowers you for holy living and effective service. By the way, when it comes to sanctification, it is a twofold experience. It says this is both a crisis and a progressive experience wrought in the life of the believer subsequent to conversion. I just feel like the guys who wrote that must have been really smart. Crisis and progressive. Even though they were really smart, I find that language unfortunate. I find that language unfortunate because it uses a word in a way that we don't use it, the word crisis. When we think of the word crisis, we almost always think of it in a negative sense. Whoa, she is having a meltdown. That's a real crisis she's having there. Negative sense. Wow, fuel is in short supply. We're having an energy crisis. Negative sense. A hurricane has struck the outer banks. There's flooding. It's a major crisis. A negative sense. The stock market is going down more quickly than I can imagine. It's a real financial crisis. Negative sense. But that is not the technical way the word is used. The word crisis, in its technical sense, means a change at a point in time for the good or for the bad or just different. Let me give you a couple examples. When you graduated from high school, you were a student, and then with your right hand, you shook the hand of the administrator who handed you in his left hand into your left hand your diploma. And the moment you got that, you had a crisis of transitioning from student to graduate. And it was a good thing, but it took place at a point in time. How about, how about getting married? That's a bit of a crisis, right? Yeah. You're standing there, and, and you say, when, when, when he says, will you take this person? You say, yeah, I will. You're still not married. You're still single. And then when he says, do you? And you say, I do. And then he says, done. That's the moment when a good crisis happens, you move from being alone and single to being with the one you love and married. That's a crisis. It means it happened at a point in time. Crisis doesn't have to mean something bad. It simply means change. And it's an unfortunate word that we use the word crisis because over and over again, I've heard people say, well, yeah, I had this crisis because, you know, I wrecked my car and that's when I got right with God. That's not what it's talking about. It doesn't have to be a bad thing but it has to occur at a point in time. Matt McCracken gave us the word, watershed event. I came to a crisis. I came to a watershed event when I realized I don't like being a nominal Christian. I don't like living a lukewarm Christian life. I don't like living a half-hearted faith. I don't like being saved and satisfied. I don't like just being a churchgoer and a pew sitter. I want something different. And you offer yourself as a living sacrifice and God does something amazing at that point in time. He fills you with His Spirit. He sanctifies you. He empowers you for holy living and effective service. And he accelerates the transformation of you into the likeness of his son. It's a crisis. And it's a process. Meaning that it happens as time goes by, throughout time. Sometimes I feel, I've been alliance since I was four years old. And so I've been exposed to this teaching for half a century. And I found among many people that sometimes they feel like I had the watershed event 
and I'm good to go. There's no more for me, and nothing could be further from the truth. Because a watershed event is the time that you put yourself on the altar, but there's a lot to be done after that, and there's a process of growing in the years that follow that. When we plowed the field on the farm growing up, <laughs> Dad would plow the field, and then he'd run a disc harrow over it, whatever he needed to, and then he'd say, hey, I want you to just take that wagon, and once you go out and pick up the big rocks and put them on, pile them on top of the other big rocks in the corner. And if you ever notice there, you know, where fields join together, there's always a big pile of rocks in the corner. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but next year when you plowed that f- same field, there were brand new rocks there. Who put those there? Must have been the devil, right? <laughs> it seemed that way when I was a kid. It's just how fields are. You'll be rock picking until you retire. That's how humans are. That indeed, you can offer yourself as a living sacrifice, and that's like giving the field to God, but there are many rocks to be picked out of the field. And by His aid, with His aid, you continue to do that. And that is a process of sanctification. How are you doing at this? How are you doing at this? Are you filled with the Spirit? Would you say right now, yep, I'm filled with the Spirit. Are you separated from the world around you? Or if people, when they, who know you, would they say, I don't really see any difference there. I'm not telling you to be an idiot, like that radical Christian worked that you knew a few years ago that turned everybody off. That's not the difference. The difference is that man, that woman, lives for something higher than the rest of us do. I want to be like them. Are you that person? Are you separate from the world? Are you experiencing power for holy living, an effective servant? Are you becoming conformed to the image of his son, Jesus? I want to talk to you about how you can do that. And I want to borrow four steps from Dr. A.B. Simpson, who founded this denomination we're in, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, this, this movement. He, he wrote what he called four steps to sanctification. And the first one cannot be skipped. It's this. Realize that you need to look to the altar. That you need to go to the altar. If you are going to enter this deeper life with Christ, then you're going to have to see that something is wrong. As long as you feel that sense of, yeah, I think I'm pretty good, then this this just will not happen for you. You have got to have a holy discontent with your life where it is. And you need to realize, I am not living the Christian life as God intended. And you need to tell them. You just need to say, God, I need to go to the altar. Forgive me. Forgive me for not living, Romans 12.1, and offering my body as a living sacrifice. Forgive me for that. I need to look to the altar. I need to go to the altar. Step two, you need to take a step of faith to ask God for sanctification Ask Him to fill you with His Spirit. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 11, He's speaking to His followers and He says, If you then, though you're evil, know how to good good gifts to your children. By the way, I don't know if I've told you this or not, but I'm a grandfather. Did I mention that ever? And my grandson was a year old this week. Birthday. We got him birthday present. Yeah. Steve, if you, even though you're evil, are a good enough guy to give a birthday present to your grandson, Jesus says, 
then how much more will your Father in heaven, who doesn't have an ounce of evil in him, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Now, as a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. If you've asked Jesus to forgive your sins, come into your life and you're following him, his spirit comes and lives inside you. But Christians are instructed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit means you're surrendered to him. It means you put it on the altar. And he's in control. And he's empowering you. If you want him to fill you up, then ask him to do that. Number three, consider this a watershed moment in your spiritual life. Dr. Simpson was all about covenants. If you read some of his stuff, study his life. That Presbyterian guy, he wrote a covenant when he got saved. I do now covenant with Jesus that I will trust him for my salvation both now and forevermore. Wrote that all down as a, this is my, you know. He did it with healing too. He says, I do now, here and now, take Jesus Christ, not just as my savior, but as my healer. You know, he, the covenant thing was him. He also took Jesus as his sanctifier. I'm not saying you have to write a covenant. I never did that. But here's what I'm saying. You have to recognize this watershed moment is yours. And this was a time that you put yourself on the altar and said, sanctify me, fill me. September 1981, Sunday evening, 7 o'clock. 1977 Dodge Diplomat, front seat, looking at the garage door in front of me. Jesus, I'm supposed to be a Christian because of a prayer I said when I was a little boy. I don't know if that counted or not, but I will tell you this. If you love me this way, I will follow you with all my heart. That's a watershed event in my life. If you look to him, and say, sanctify me and fill me. Today, and remember, September 16, 2018, Jesus, Jesus, I repent of thinking that an average Christian life was what you were looking for. I want you to fill me and sanctify me. It's on the altar. And then fourth, Walk in faith, believing that God has changed you and will ever change you because because I can guarantee you if you make this decision this morning when we conclude in prayer, there is an enemy of your soul who will say that meant nothing. There's an enemy of your soul who will say, you did this before, didn't work last time. There's an enemy of your soul who will say, this is for the elites, you just don't have what they have. None of us have it, guys. Only God has it, and he gives it to us. And you must never believe the enemy of your soul. And so walk in faith, saying, God, I believe you have changed me, and you will change me. And I'm going to guarantee you, you'll fail. I'm going to guarantee you, you will sin. This isn't about being perfect this is about being dead and being raised to walk a new life by the power of the Spirit in you. And when you enter this life, the Holy Spirit will fill you. 
so that your life will be marked by the fruit of the Spirit. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. I could use that. I could use patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I'll take those things when you enter into this life and put it on the altar. His Spirit gives you those things. And you have power to overcome sin, so you no longer regard anything from a human, worldly viewpoint. But you see it differently. And even when you do mess up, now it's not like, yeah, everybody messes up. Now it's like, oh, Jesus, I need you to help me not to do that the next time. And you have an ability to serve effectively. So someone might look at you and say, boy, I can't think of anyone more ill-prepared to be a Christian than you, but look at what you're doing 32 years later or 32 hours later. 